just a quick disclaimer before we get into the episode. Um, this is not about the real men of Easy Company. This is about the show Band of Brothers. We are not disparaging the legacy and the campaigns of the actual men who fought in World War II. We are simply some friends who want to talk about Band of Brothers because it's our favorite show. And with that being said, enjoy the episode. Well, surprise, surprise, this is yet another, but the final two-parter of this podcast. Um, This is episode seven, The Breaking Point, and it's another one of those things where we just, you know, time got away from us and we ended up taking quite a long time. And so without further ado, this is part one. Hello and welcome to episode seven. This is the breaking point. And, you know, it really was for a lot of them. Joining me today, I have Kate. Hey. (laughs) I have Laura. Hello. And I have Maria. Hello. So, yeah, everyone here has uh, been here already. Kate, this is uh, third time's the charm. Yes. Let's, let's hope it's a good one. All right. I love the, I love the confidence. <laughs> um, I mean, Perfect but no, lesson. yeah, this is, this is a very painful episode. So it is. it's not a, it's not an easy one to talk about. <laughs> we, um, we pick up, I'm just going to jump right into it. Cause we have no questions to ask. Uh, no assessments to Go make. <laughs> so we start off, I believe probably like a couple days after Bastogne ends where we had been following uh, one specific character, Doc Rowe, and we learned that we're going to be following another specific character in Lipton, who at the time was first sergeant of Easy Company. Um, so the show opens, the episode opens with a group of men sitting in... <laughs> the sitting in a foxhole planning a planning a move through the forest to return to their old positions um they are using malarkey as a table because this is the beginning of this man just not being able to catch a break um is that a good way to say that (laughs) that's a very good way to say that i mean this is the episode Um, where malarkey breaks that eight is but yeah seven is where he's like uh uh broken down for sure but yeah so they do the beginning of the end so yeah yeah it is oh i i would say that's uh it's that way for the entire series (laughs) true i keep trying to find a theme and it's not going well for me of any sort of happiness for this for these people yeah um so yeah, then they, they make their thousand-yard march through the woods to return to their old positions, which was um, away from Bastogne, more towards Foy, because they knew they were going to be uh, attacking it in the coming days. So a running theme of the show for one specific character was Hubler, and in the first episode, he mentions he wants to get a Luger. 
he asked to see the one English uh, paratroopers Luger that he had gotten in episode three, everyone's showing off what they got when they returned to the company. And he's like, my Luger is going to put you all to shame. And in episode seven, he finally gets it. He um, shoots a German officer on horseback and he's like, oh, I'm going to go loot this body. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and he gets his Luger and he's so excited and he goes, foxhole to foxhole, showing it off. Everyone is uh, annoyed because he's not doing his work. He's not helping. Hubler, are you dug in? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Dug in, dug in. Got it. Now let's talk some more about this gun I've got. Yeah, let's let's talk more about this weapon. And, um, you know, Lipton's like, yeah, you're, you're confident. You're a great shot, Hoob. Of course. It took him three tries. Took him three tries, but he's a great shot. Well, also, I mean, shooting a moving target on a horse, trying yeah. not to shoot the horse. I'm just glad he didn't shoot the horse, if I'm honest. I mean, Shifty is too. Yeah, Shifty. Yeah, shifty everyone. For this horse. Yeah, who? I'm, I'm the best shot, everyone. Anyway, okay, so Shifty. Um, <laughs> But and that's the really sweet scene with Shifty where like they do compliment his where Hoob's like, I could even give you a run for your money. And he's like, No, I'm not a good shot. Now dad. Dad was a good shot. His paw. Your paw. Who whatever. Oh, it's just so sweet. And it's like, oh, humble king. Shifty is a good boy. I mean, he's a good shot. And I really like this moment because it's one of the few moments where like this concept of like the soft boy really comes out in the moment where he's just like, I wonder how the horse is doing. Like, I hope it's okay. Like, yeah. I hope the horse got back to someone who cares about it and like that he wasn't too hurt. I, that's such an oddly sweet moment from like this, what I'm assuming Shift is a farm boy essentially. Like, he probably grew up with horses. Mm-hmm. I just like that moment. It's very cute. Um, I believe this is, there's also the first of many Where's Dyke moments mm -hmm. in this first scene. I think, is it Peacock who comes and he's like, where's Dyke? Like, just like, annoyed. As he should be. Because um, you saw some of these tendencies for him to hide in episode six, but you see, but they're like, it's a main focal point of this episode of Dyke to just be sort of mentally and sometimes even physically absent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think in episode six, we see Dyke as essentially a side character because there isn't really too much to do in episode yeah. six. They're kind of sitting ducks. They're kind of, you know, they have their orders. We're holding the line. If anyone comes through, we're going to shoot at them. But other than that, you don't really need to make any huge tactical decisions mm -hmm. in that case. But then comes episode seven and this, not, not to call it laziness, but this inactivity of dykes really becomes a problem because now suddenly they have decisions to make. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because there's, we don't see it, uh, but there's actually a lot of movement in episode seven. Mm -hmm. uh, in that they move, like, from their original position um, down into the Bois Jacques, 
they do that like thousand foot march. They're actually in the Boisjac for a little bit. And then Christensen and is it Webb? Yeah, Webb and then Percante. And Percani, like are left in the Boisjac with D Company and like Easy comes back to their original position. But then the like second shelling is actually them on like the other side of Foy. So there's a lot yeah. of movement in this episode that like we don't see. Yeah. Because um, Lipton, because um, yeah, if you, because you do like notice that like their foxholes sort of look different in every yeah. location, but Lipton does mm-hmm. as he's like, they, they had to go east to west, like they had to clear that whole area. Mm-hmm. So, With, I th- is like that portion, the reason why there aren't very good foxholes in that second shelling is because they had literally like just gotten there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so yeah and like going back to like this point in the episode which is the very beginning um like they're all digging in like they're not they're not settled yet they just had arrived and um this is also <sighs> the first death of the episode yeah um, cause and there is a drawn out one. Yeah. And they, they do, um, they hear a shot and everyone is immediately back on edge. They're like, you know, where, at which point are they coming from? And, you know, shift, they ask Shifty, like Shifty can tell it's not a rifle. It wasn't like a sniper that was attacking them. Um, but it's, who is it? Is Hashi who, uh, yeah. alerts them to Hubler? who accidentally shot himself mm. with the Luger that he worked, that he had not worked for. He, he did, but he had been wanting for so long and it, it got him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He, he, uh, I'm not going to say he died doing what he loved, but there's some kind of connection that like he got what he wanted and it killed him which is like a recurring theme um like the last episode that i was on in the podcast was episode three where we had Blythe, who turns into a good soldier and then he dies and now we have hubler who gets something that he's wanted since literally day one and it ends up killing him yeah and it Um, I I would say even like that kind of superstition um, of like being jinxed um, really comes to the forefront in this episode Um, between Hubler finally getting his Luger and the discussion of people who haven't been wounded yet uh, that comes later. Mm -hmm. There's like, there's a lot of, uh, scenes around that kind of superstition of maybe being too lucky uh, is going to get you killed. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of an interesting point they make. In this. this is also just like a really sad death. I mean, obviously they're all sad, but this always stood out to me because it's is so needless and it comes out of nowhere. And it also like you, it feels really long when you're watching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have, I was going to say, because you have, like, a bunch of men around him, and they're just working their hardest Mm. to to save them. 
Yeah, and like Nick's, uh, like Nixon says after this happens, when Lipton goes to report the death, he's like, "There's, there's nothing that anyone could have done," but they're still out there fighting. And I feel like this kind of sets up something that becomes a recurring theme in later episodes. Like this is the point where people start dying, or start or start, but they every death feels like it's completely pointless at this point because they're getting far enough into the wall where people shouldn't be dying anymore. It's kind of the feeling, like people should not be dying in these like rookie ways of sticking a gun down your own pants. Like this should not be happening. It's too unfair. It, it sort of shows that, you know, the exhaustion and it makes you sloppy. You know, you've been yeah. a trained professional and you've been able to, to do your job with finesse to this point, but, you know, people are, they're tired, they're cold, they're hungry, and they're, they're not, uh, they're not at the level that they should be. Yeah. And then and something is- happens, like a positive thing, like I finally got this gun that I wanted and now I'm going to ignore my foxhole responsibilities and I'm going to walk foxhole to foxhole and kind of not brag, but kind of brag about this thing and then that does him in essentially um speaking on on that whole exhaustion point this is also the first full episode past christmas um which for the first five episodes all we hear about is berlin by christmas like, this mm. is going to get us to Berlin by Christmas. This will get us to Berlin by Christmas. Maybe we're not going to get to Berlin by Christmas. And now it's after Christmas, and they're still sitting, like, just yeah. outside of Bastogne, like, at Foy, not even anywhere close to Berlin at this point. Um, and I think that in and of itself becomes a breaking point that, like, we were all kind of hoping to be done by now. Um, yeah. And we're not even close, and we're frozen, and this is miserable, mm. and people keep dying. We and there's no leadership. Like, I mean, morale yeah. must just be like in the Mariana Trench, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. And then Lip comes in and does literally just everything he can um, to keep these boys together. Yeah, but and the- you gotta respect the man. <laughs> Yeah, he he really, really tries his hardest. And in a weird way, I feel like a a kind of recurring theme with EC is the bad CO. Like, they have Sobel, they have Dyke, they have a couple of other guys who kind of flit in and out and aren't exactly great at their jobs. I mean, later on uh, uh, in the episode where they're kind of talking about, like, who would we even replace Dyke with if we could? It kind of shows that they have like one or two good leaders, but they're not really like overcrowded with them at that point. And so I feel like Easy starts to band together. Obviously they've been like a very tight knit group ever since Tokoa, but I feel like they kind of start to band together over their shared despise of Dyke as a leader. Like no one almost in the same way that they came together in the first episode, right? Yeah, against Sobel. Yeah, and um, it's like this weird callback where they're all standing around talking shit about their CEO, and <laughs> it's kind of like a weird bonding moment. And you as the viewer kind of go, 
yeah, I support that. I'm so sorry. There's also um, there's sort of a a thing in the first episode, and I think Kate, you brought this up in the first episode, how it's Lipton again who sort of puts them in their place when he comes upon them talking shit about Dyke. Right, yeah. And how in the first episode they were waiting for the train and um, they were talking about Sobel. And he, like, he mom yeah. looked, he gave them the mom look then, but this is when he really had to, like, step in and say, hey, cut the shit. We're all, we all hate him, but, like, we have to get through it. Mm. Yeah, and at the same time, Lipton is the one who actually tries to do something about it. Like, the other men mm-hmm. are standing there, like, talking about, and Lipton is the one who goes to Nixon. No, sorry, he goes to Winters, and it's like, I do not have any faith in this man. He is going to get us killed. I can't remember in episode one if he was the one to initiate the mutiny against Sobel. No, it was just one of the guys. Yeah, it was Ranny. He, but Lipton, again, in the first episode, is the one who's like, I'll help you, but we have to understand what we're doing. We have to understand Mm -hmm. the, uh, the consequences of our the potential consequences of our actions. Mm. Yeah. But he, he's the one who um, does remind them of respect. He's like, you know, you don't have to like him, but he's our CEO. I know you guys feel like we could do a better job without him, but we're not allowed. Mm. So pull it yeah. together. Yeah. And I also feel like, Lipton is trying, and I think this is what's so frustrating about the character of Dyke, is that there are these people around him trying to kind of give him little outs, if that's it. Like, Lipton comes up to them and he's like, I wouldn't want to be in that position because you're all so great. Obviously, it's really hard to gain your respect and to, to kind of have that leadership ability and to be able to trust yourself. And it's kind of like and out for that, that like he could have taken that route of like slowly trying to get to learn the man and overcome his own nervosity if that was the case um Lipton it 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 seems like he's really trying to have the benefit of the doubt because he respects his superior officers but it just doesn't work out like that and it's very very frustrating to see and I cannot believe how frustrating it would have been to be there because you know these are the best of the best these are a bunch of men who volunteered to be here went through two years of some of the most backbreaking training ever they've been on the front line since day one and suddenly this klutz like this guy who kind of walks away like doesn't even want to be here is supposed to lead us like no that's not going to happen do you ever want, speaking of walking away, do you ever wonder if that was really the turning point for Lip when, like, he, Dyke randomly comes over and is, like, asking him about his life? Yeah. And then Lipton turns and is like, so what about you? And he's just, like, gone. Yeah. Has yeah. just left the conversation without even saying anything, just peaced out. And Lipton's yeah. just like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's yeah. one of the scenes that, like, just 
makes Dyke such a perplexing character to me because I think towards the beginning, it's Lipton in the voiceover says that he thinks of Easy Company as like an irritation, basically, like something he has to get through. Mm. But I also like don't really get that feeling from the things that his character actually does because, I mean, obviously he has some interest in, you know, the guys because he asks Lipton all those questions. I mean, to me, he just seems very like absent-minded like I honestly don't know what to make of his character because his intentions don't seem to be bad but I don't know I I I see like that scene I watch it's kind of I mean it's kind of funny he's just like asking these like it's like interrogating him (laughs) yeah and then he's like he's he asks him where he's from he asks him why he joins the paratroopers, what he did. And then at the end, he's just, like, standing there after, like, ten seconds of silence. He's like, so do you miss it? And he's like, miss what? Miss home? <laughs> he's like, Huntington. Yeah. It's such, like, a weird... That is just a very perplexing... And I'm like, here's the thing. I'm the same type of conversationalist, so I can't even, like, fault him, so... Yeah, that moment where where Lipton goes, yeah, and my mom died, or my dad died, I can't remember Mm -hmm. which one, when I was really little, and he's just like, that's sad. Like, Like he's trying, you know, that's the thing that confuses me, like, he's not dismissive. And that's the thing, like, as a person who suffers from really, really bad social anxiety, I can relate to that moment of, like, having, like, trying to have this cookie-cutter conversation with this guy who is so much more well respected and so much better at your job and <laughs> yeah knowing what to do with it and then in the end you're kind of like this is awkward so i'm gonna leave now and then you just walk away and then that makes you look like a freak like i kind of in a weird way i really 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 relate to dyke but then again i'm not in the army But also, like, what you said, think about how he never becomes, like, resentful of, like, Winters or Lipton or these people who, like, basically have what he, well, not that he wants it, but who have the respect of the men, like, Mm. in a way that Sobel was always, like, resentful of Winters because the men liked him more. Dyke, like, doesn't even seem to care about that. He just, like, checks out. Um, But but also, like, he has been in charge for more than three days at this point. I think that's really what gets me is like, yeah, you've been a part of this unit for like a month, if, like if not more. Because I think it's like right, uh, like a couple weeks, a couple days before. Uh, it's right before in episode five where Winners has to go to Paris. Yeah. So he's been and with that- them for at least a month. At least, like, yeah, at least a month, and you're just now getting around to asking Lipton, like, where he's from? That's true. That's your first sergeant. Like, you would think that maybe you've had a conversation with the guy before, and apparently he just straight up hasn't, and just randomly comes out of the woodwork in January, like, hey, where are you from? And Lipton- Well, since it looks like we're going to be here for a while, might as well. Yeah. <laughs> Let me make a friend. jump down into your foxhole and, like, help you dig um, or help in any sort of way. I'm just going to stand here awkwardly and rapid-fire questions at you 
a month after like we met. <laughs> and then I'm gonna leave. Yeah, and yeah. then just walk off. And Lipton's like, you know what? This is there's just well, I well, here's yeah. well, he walks off like right when like Lipton like asked him a question about him. So like Dyke's like, I am unknowable. You will know nothing about me. <laughs> I am from Yale, and that's it. <laughs> that's the only thing we know about him. That's the only thing you need to know. I am from Yale. Assigned so, Yale at birth. I'm from no Yale. other no other identification. <laughs> I am very tired all the time, <laughs> and I need to go find Battalion. Like, um, how no, do you I'm, not? How do you? Battalion doesn't move. You know where it's at. <laughs> they established their point. You don't need to go find them. Yeah, and also like we've established that. Dick Winters also doesn't know where the fuck he's at. So obviously you can't be doing that good at finding them if that's your excuse. But uh, yeah, he's such he's such a weird character and it like doing it kind of reminds me of like this conversation that I've seen people have. I'm gonna do a very weird comparison here. But in Harry Potter, the villain that people hate the most isn't Voldemort, it is Umbridge. Because Umbridge kind of reminds you of a real human being. Definitely. And in a weird way, I kind of feel like that's where Dyke is at. And that's kind of why he's so frustrating. It's because I at least have very much met people who just kind of refuse to, to make decisions. They kind of refuse to take the responsibility of the decision that they have. And that ends up like, I mean, anyone who's ever been in a group project mm-hmm. and you have that mm-hmm. one guy who's just kind of sitting in the corner and you're like, okay. what are you expecting us to do when it's time for us to present this? We're going to have nothing. Are you just planning to stand there with but, nothing? I, I kind of feel like Dyke is that person. Like, what are you expecting to happen? And it's most frustrating about Dyke because he's the one that's supposed to be the know-it-all and the take charge, but he mm-hmm. is the, 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 free ro- the free rider. He's the freeloader. Mm. Um. Um, and I, I like, so the other episode that I was on was Karen Tan. Um, and we got into a conversation about like the myth building around Easy Company that like they don't fall back and mm-hmm. they're always mm-hmm. the lead and they're always in the most vital positions, right? Mm. Um, and they're coming up against this issue of this man who is supposed to lead the best of the best and is an absolute turd, um, for lack of a better term. Um, somehow a very, yeah. Yeah, but they, they like, it's almost a juxtaposition of like him versus, for instance, the scene when they get back to their original position uh, on the east side of Foy, and it has been shelled to oblivion. And mm-hmm. there's like Shames and Buck and Lip, and I can't remember who the fourth person is because it's not Peacock, because Peacock has gone home at that point. And everyone's like, well, maybe we should fall back. And Buck's like, no, like we hold this position. This is our position. Yeah. We hold this position. Mm-hmm. And looks over at Dyke, knowing that the man has no idea what they're talking about, and is like, "Isn't that right, Dyke?" Like, yeah. Like, well, and like, then he's like, absolutely. as present as per usual. Like, me too, King. Oh when God. I'm checked out. 
Yeah. When they're like, well, uh, what, um, you know, what yeah. positions should we take? Uh, what, I, I can't um, remember the word that I'm looking for. Yeah. But I, that's, the, the problem with Dyke does continue throughout the episode, but like, you also have a lot of, I don't want to say friction amongst the men, but they are getting very uh, restless. Mm-hmm. And they're they're bored. They're sitting in foxholes in the woods waiting to be shelved every day and night. Like, like what more is there to do? And there's a very um there's a very sweet scene after jumping back to try to like get back on the timeline of um like it's Pinkala, Muck, and Luz sitting in a foxhole and Muck starts telling a story about how he swam across the Niagara River because yeah. um, they, because I think it's Buck who tells them not to do anything stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Her, crazy Buck. Yeah, and 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 Pinkal is like, we jump out of airplanes, like we jump out of perfectly good airplanes. None of us are like, you know, smart, but Muck tells a story of when he went over when he swam across the Niagara. And how it was like, you know, this thing with his, his, uh, his sister and his mom and his girlfriend and like, that's just like a mo, that's just like a very bittersweet moment, especially when you know what happens in like 20 minutes in, in the episode. Um, and you realize like, what's like keeping these men sort of sane for themselves. Yeah. It's these, like, thoughts and these memories of home. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of a moment, I think it's in Bastogne, where Buck shows this picture of his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And he's like, she's leaving me. Like, that's the moment. Yeah. And you kind of see that hope kind of break down. But, like, in the opposite mm-hmm. way. And... Yeah, it's hard to think about, like, how important those memories must have been to even sitting in these foxholes, just hoping that they're not going to die, hoping that they're going to have, like, a dud hit them and not the real thing. Yeah. And, like, even in this episode, we have, like, an opposite end of the story, opposite end of the spectrum story from home when after Buck talks to Babe and Bill, Mm -hmm. and they start discussing crazy Joe McCluskey. Yeah. <laughs> Babe's like, that's him. Like, look at his, look at his eyes. He's crazy. Um, but, but Bill is like, he's fine. Cause he's like, you know, he, cause Bill knows obviously, but that's more of a shut up. You, we can't talk about this sort of yeah. moment, but it's, it's um, piled on with a story from home and it's a memory, a commonality that they share. Because to <laughs> to Maria's point, like, in episode three, when you're talking about, like, nicknames, like, that's how you identify people, and they both knew who it was. Crazy Joe McCluskey is our Faye Tanner. Yeah, Crazy in this Joe scene, McCluskey. he's the Faye Tanner. Yeah. Crazy Joe McCluskey <laughs> sitting in a pub somewhere, and a <laughs> rabbi and a priest walking, <laughs> and it's just Philly. No, but... And I- it's- 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it is just, I was just realizing it is the Philly guys that have the, the weird nicknames. The insane nicknames. Yeah. Thank Although you. Although I would argue that Crazy Joe McCluskey is not a weird nickname. That, yeah, that's just, <laughs> just, that's just a qualifier. A no, because he was crazy, babe. Yeah, it's a qualifier. Oh, but Laura, do, do you have a lot of friends that just like, oh yeah, that's Crazy Karen. Like, well, no, okay, I think the cool. craziness is implicit in the name Karen. But also, <laughs> yeah. Oh, everyone is whitey. Like we just call everybody whitey, uh, and that it's just a thing. Uh, like Don't Whitey Bulger. Like I had three different friends in high school whose names, whose nicknames were. It's just like no, yeah. we don't call people Crazy Joe because we're not that exciting of people. Americans are so weird. Okay, <laughs> but anyway, so you have Buck going from foxhole to foxhole, giving out dipshit advice, and I think that's really <laughs> because he's going around. Like Muck has a really good point. He's going around telling people to not get in trouble. Like, what do you think we're doing? Like, yeah. But also, like, I love this scene because after sitting around talking about Dyke for like the whole episode, the moment Babe mentions that Buck is maybe going a little insane, Bill is like, you shut that shit down right now. Like, that is Buck Compton. He is our friend. He is a good person. He's not crazy. He's fine. Stop talking about him in that way. It's, it's the first of, time it's the first time Babe's treated like a replacement. It is. Mm, true. And it's I think it like, was um Lipton who said at one point like that little monologue about like fear, right? How like you can't let them be afraid because that'll just tear down the whole operation basically. Like I guess his point was like he wasn't going to let Babe like kind of sow those seeds of doubt. And, you know, mm-hmm. because at that point, Buck is, like, one of the only leaders they have that is trustworthy to them. So, I mean, Dyke is, like, it's a given that they can't trust him. But, yeah. you know, Buck is, like, the only person they have left. If Dyke sucks and can't do his job properly, that's something that we can bond together over. If mm-hmm. Buck is unable to do his job, it's going to tear us apart. Because mm-hmm. he's the last competent leader that we have. And exactly. He's, and he's, you know... Um, but I do, I do kind of also like the fact that Babe, because Babe has, like, Buck wasn't one of the original guys. He came in right before D-Day, I think. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, um, he came in England, I think. Yeah, so, um, Babe was a replacement who came in late episode three. And in that sense, neither one of them are kind of original guys. And I wonder if that's why... Babe felt like he could breach this subject, like mm-hmm. to insinuate that this guy was crazy. Because if he would have insinuated that, say, Joe Toy was insane, then that would have gotten him mm-hmm. a smack on the mouth, like immediately. That would have got him a bullet to the head. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Like, if, if he would have, especially from Bill Garnier. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he dares to kind of say it about Buck, and. I kind of wonder how long did that fear fester in Babe Heffron for him to actually say it? Because he's also not stupid. Like, he knows what it means to call someone crazy Joe McClough or whatever it was. Um, it's, it's borderline mutiny at that point, at least in this specific scenario. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, he strikes me as the type of the type of young man with no filter. He's a mouthy one, so he's just mm-hmm. gonna like he's just gonna say something if he means it. And I, but I think I think bringing it up with Bill was the only person he felt safe to bring it up with mm-hmm. because um you know that's someone who he he could make a comparison and not just say hey I think Buck's crazy he could make a comparison that Bill would understand mm-hmm. yeah and I also think that maybe it was one of those moments where you need reassurance that everything is all right but you don't know how to get it because mm-hmm. i mean not to go too much into gender theory but these are men in the 1940s talking about feelings and worries especially about their friends isn't exactly something people excel at but then again you're also in the middle of a war so someone being a bit insane isn't just like a bad thing but it's kind of like bringing it up with Bill in order to get the smackdown that everything is okay? Maybe? Mm. I, I didn't think about it that way. That's a really interesting thought, though. Yeah. Because Bill doesn't sugarcoat things. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. say what you want about Bill Garnier, but he doesn't seem like the type to lie about something he cares about. Um, and so if you're starting to think that we have one good leader and I think he's going insane, can someone please tell me that this is not the case? Mm. Yeah. Is it him going insane or is it me starting to lose it? Like, it's this Mm -hmm. sort of. But Put me back in my place. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Um, But also, you know, we almost, we're, we're supposed to lose Nixon here as well. He's supposed to go back to the States, but uh, being that he is a higher-ranking officer, he can say, mm, no, because he doesn't want to leave Dick. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love the way he phrases it. He's like, I've seen the States. I grew up there. That's why I came to Europe. Um, yeah. I wish somebody had told me there was a war going on. <laughs> yeah. So he, So I think him and Dick have that conversation of like, well, who can we get rid of? And, you know, they decide on Peacock, and everyone is just backhanding the shit, backhand <laughs> the comment the shit out of him. They're I'm so like, glad to hear you're leaving. That is such a shitty thing to say to someone. I'm glad you go. Nobody home. deserves this more than you, Peacock. <laughs> but, but just to backtrack to the moment with Winters and Nixon, can we talk about how Nixon is like, the most stable man in this entire war. He's just like, yeah, they mm. could have sent me home, but I mean, I've already seen the States. I don't need yeah. to go back there. How, how fucking comfortable with yourself do you have to be in order to be able to make those kinds of jokes? Not to mention, when that man comes with the piece of paper, Lewis Nixon is dead asleep. Like, Yeah, crawls out of his hole like a gremlin. Yeah. yeah. Like, the man's like, hello? Like, he comes out of, like, a dead sleep and just grabs this piece of paper out of his hand. Like, how comfortable can you be to be that asleep, like, in your foxhole? Granted, he's probably hungover. Um, But, like, like, that's one of the scenes that really made me absolutely love Lewis Nixon is he's just like, yeah, no, I'm good. Like, every time somebody comes along, he is sleeping in his foxhole. Granted, part of that is because he always stayed up almost until dawn. Um, 
like, uh, I was, this is going to sound really weird. I was talking to my dad the other day uh, about Band of Brothers. And we were talking about the whole Dick and Lou dynamic. And he was like, no, the reason why they worked so well is because Dick Winters is a morning and like afternoon guy. And Lewis Nixon is a night owl. So basically, (laughs) they always had the line covered. Like there was always someone awake if anything happened. And the reason they worked so well together is because of that dynamic, because there was actually not a lot of like overlap Mm-hmm. of their waking hours um so yeah a little I bit of them that. but not many yeah um that's cool because you so also, like, i think that's that's like, just transatlantic friendships though i know <laughs> <laughs> that's just me hanging out with all of you it's just i wake yeah. up at 7 a.m and i'm like hello <laughs> yeah, I yeah. and it's 1 a.m like, you want to watch oz <laughs> <laughs> um no, but but that's a really good observation, and I think like what what's always fascinated me about the Winters and Nixon friendship is how much they remain people throughout the series. Like they still, there are a couple of moments, especially for Nixon, where he's kind of at his own breaking point. But even I mean, even here, like after the stone, and now we're here, and we have this problem with this. Uh, commanding officer that we can't get rid of and everything sucks they're still kind of able to have like just chill banter wait like actually what you just said reminded me of something because like if you think about it um nixon's breaking point is like doesn't happen until he's kind of faced with the reality of like going back to the united states whereas for all the other guys their breaking point is thinking about how much longer they're going to have to stay in Europe. Like, they're opposites. That's yeah. a good point. I mean, I think Nixon really kind of found not a calling, but, like, something that he was kind of good at. Mm. Um, and something very far outside of the life that was, I think, prescribed for him mm. um, at birth, uh, being exceedingly wealthy, uh you know with a Yale education because he is indeed also, also assigned Yale at birth. <laughs> assigned Yale at birth. And he's one of those those pricks from Yale. Like he should be a dyke. And he's not. He's really good at his job. He's so good at it that he can come out of a dead sleep and make decisions. Uh, like in a, like despite how horrible the circumstances are, he's kind of like in his element, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what what I also like about this is, like, dramaturgically, like, the parallels between what separates, like, why don't they have respect for Dyke, despite being able to have respect for these other people? Like, we can have respect for Nixon, despite being assigned Yale at birth. Like, Nixon is another one of those rich, arrogant types from Yale. Um, And then we have Buck, who's kind of losing it but there is still respect for him. And I think it's because, like, for Dyke, it's all of these things at once. I mean, they had, I think they definitely did have, and maybe we see less of it because there was respect for him, respect for them with um, Shames and Foley. Mm -hmm. And we see a lot less of them, but, like, they, uh, 
they also lead the assault on Foy, and their men are, you know, more apt to listen to them than Dyke, but that's later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that, that is actually really, that, like, Dyke has almost one piece of the, like, negative connotation, like, each other leader that they like has one piece of, like, that Dyke trifecta of kind of Mm-hmm. the disaster I guess that is Dyke so like why is it that everyone else that they have respect for um they can look past this and I really think that that's the reason why there's that awkward conversation between him and Lipton is to show that like maybe the reason that they don't have respect for Dyke is because he literally didn't take any time mm-hmm. to even figure out who these people are yeah like you know, that every, they know everybody else. Like, they respect yes. them out of, like, knowledge and out of a closeness and a brotherhood, and Dyke just mm-hmm. didn't really see the point in doing any of that. And also makes no decisions and is a terrible leader. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they they don't like him for a lot more than just his leadership qualities. Yeah. I because love I'm- how... <laughs> I was gonna say, I love how this is like the Lipton episode, but we're like, no, it's about Dyke and how bad he is. <laughs> well, that, yeah, I, I have my reason. Um, but either way, it's because even with Sobel, like to kind of build off what Laura talked about, even with Sobel, there's a moment where he makes his grand return to the series. I can't remember if it was before or after this, where we kind of haven't seen him for a while and the entire of EC just kind of goes silent and watches him pass by. Like, there is a weird kind of respect in that, even if it's the respect of a man that you hate. Um, Whereas I have a really hard time seeing anyone treat Dyke like he was important in any way, shape or form, because they just kind of blatantly don't care about Dyke. Like, they despised or hated Sobel, but they just don't care about Dyke. And that's also very, like, that's a, that, that's a cool dynamic to have in a TV series. The, uh, the, the next bit of the episode... I'm trying to get us back on track. The next bit of the episode is sort of like a, uh, a bittersweet thing because it's the return of Joe Toy. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, and sort of his, his welcome back to the company and how he's, he's being interviewed for, like, the probably, I don't know, propaganda film that's going to be shown back home. And he's like, I didn't, we didn't need to be fucking rescued by Patton. But that's, like, a sentiment shared by all of them. Like, none of them were like, we had it. We were doing fine. Meanwhile, they weren't. Yeah, they were dying. They did did not have that situation under control. It's like when when your math teacher's like, does anyone have questions? And you have questions, and you're not doing well, but you're like, I don't need need this help. (laughs) Then you finally break and go to tutoring. Bad at something, meanwhile, you get an F. On yeah, literally. <laughs> um, but I mean, um, they held their own, but they would not have gotten out of the stone had 
reinforcements not coming from the outside. Like that's sorry to say, but yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the case. And I get that maybe like the entire attitude around it was frustrating to see because really they did hold out. Like they held the line. They protected their what they were doing, but they would not have gotten out of there alive. But anyway, Dick will sort of yeah dick is like uh why are you here <laughs> you don't need to be here and it's and it's interesting to think like had he not been there yeah but dot if, dot dot but if he hadn't gotten back would he have gotten the webster treatment mm. Mm. no uh, he had more respect <laughs> the bar is so low to have be more respected than Webster. But like Joe yeah, Toy was in Baston. He just yeah. wasn't in the Boisac. Like if he had like just yeah. like ended up there like after Rashab. Yeah. Yeah, but then I mean I I I've always liked the parallel between Webster and Joe because you have Toy who does come back and basically goes AWOL, which I think is like a dismissible offense in the army, like you're not supposed to do that. Um, because yeah. he's afraid of losing the companionship of EC. Yeah. And I mean, we see what happens when that happens in the next episode, which is coming up. Um, you have the consequences of a man who did obey orders and stayed where someone told him to be for as long as he was told to be there. But yeah. in Toy's case, that sends him down a slippery slope to not only well, losing he, his own leg but losing Bill's leg as well. Well, he has well he had more companionship with Easy to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um like Webster whatever. Oh, this isn't Webster's episode. I don't want to fucking talk about Webster. <laughs> <laughs> but like the way that he's like welcomed back and he he sees the replacement and he's like what's that? <laughs> what is that, you little shit stain? Bitch on my turf. But then I love it that he's like, oh, I thought it was someone who I'd known for two years and just forgot his face. Yeah. Mm. That's it's just such a lie. I just love that. Like, oh, uh, I really don't know you. Okay. I cool. and I do love how like Muck takes like the the kid Web on um like a tour of the company. Yeah. He's like talking about it. Yeah, this guy but, got shot in the ass, and this guy got shot in the ass, and this guy got shot in the leg. Now that is a woozy. Yeah, like, and he's like, you know, Luz has never been hit either. Mm-hmm. So, and that's a trend that continues throughout the episode. We get to see Buck Compton's cake. Yeah, caked up, and um, <laughs> we we get an update on Lipton's nuts. Mm-hmm. Course, very important. Fine. They're doing I'm fine. I'm so glad the wool does not. Fine. Thanks for okay. asking. The walnuts, as they're known. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a second. <laughs> oh, Donnie Wahlberg's walnuts. Yeah. Maria will now leave the episode because that was like that's the high point. <laughs> we can't yeah, do any better where, than that. That's where I end the episode. Um, I actually don't know anything else that happens. Space <laughs> 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 didn't join. There was no church scene. <laughs> um, um, but on the subject of 
Joe Toy, I just want to read something that I put in my notes. How is Kirk such an emotionally intelligent actor, yet such a blockhead in real life? Yeah, how's your daughter's something phone, I, Kirk? I truly do not understand, because he is a really good actor. Like, I remember, I like, in every scene, like, he was in, every time I was like, oh, wow, like, he's really doing a good job. And then I think about how he is absolutely insane in real life oh he smashed his daughter's phone disconnect i don't know (laughs) i just want to let you know like if if kirk avocado or whatever ever sees this i just want to let him know that i hold no grudge i'm on a list now my life is in danger (laughs) um i won't say that i'll i don't even want to say the 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 word because i feel like that would be an invitation for it but um I'm afraid of him. Yeah, I'll admit it. <laughs> Just a little. I'm Beat scared. my ass. He wouldn't. He wouldn't. I, I, I am very sure of the fact that I'm a woman and he would not, but um, he could beat my ass. <laughs> he could kick my ass. That's oh, you're pretty crappy. I feel like you could hold your own. I'm a pacifist. I don't fight. Oh, well, in and that then case. You'd, you'd win the ethical part of that battle. <laughs> Just make sure to protect your face. Yeah. You'd win the battle where it's like he's kicking a woman lying down, and you're just there, like, I want not but peace. And <laughs> then that would go viral. And. So... <laughs> um, but and also. You'd be dead, but you'd be well. <laughs> Like there, there would be, be a martyr. Like an internet fame. I become for... a martyr for it. Girl uh... gets beat. Girl gets murdered by Kirk because she talked smack about. Because someone else talked smack about him on a podcast. Um. Yeah. So lips nuts are okay. Yeah. So to get back mm-hmm. into the episode. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I yes. absolutely love. Uh, this Johnny Martin scene, yeah, wherein Webb is like, "Oh, how many of y'all have been injured?" And Johnny Martin's just like, "It's called wounded." Peanut he calls him peanut. Yeah, oh yeah, he calls him peanut. It's called wounded <laughs> peanut. Like Johnny Martin calling someone peanut is just, I like love that because that's really the whole point of his character is the one who's like, "I am so done." Like, every time you see his face, it's like, I am so done. Yeah, yeah but a perfect get me out of here. Yeah. But I also, like, adore that where it's like, who cares what you call it? You got hurt in combat. <laughs> like, no, it's not called being injured. It's called being wounded. Like, are you five years old? Why does this matter to you? But it does, because injured is falling out of a tree, and wounded is like important that's true i mean i i just yeah it's just no it's absurd war psychology um that i find interesting but then Uh, and then that leads into this whole skip being blessed by Mm -hmm. not being injured yeah Uh, but then that leads us up to a moment that we kind of talked about at the very beginning where Christensen and Webb, and who's the third guy? Uh, Perconte. Yeah. yeah, 
uh, Christensen and Webb and Perkani get left behind, essentially. Like, they're ordered to stay behind and to check up with Dog Company. And they start with the myth-making again. They start talking about Ronald Spears, who is certifiably... Yeah, fake. let's uh, let's talk about this. Christensen gossips once in his life and regrets it forever. <laughs> oh my god, I know! <laughs> Just the cryptid showing up to, like, offer him a cigarette. The, that is a talking moment. Oh my the god. The scene of him, like wandering through the forest like with like eyes his mm-hmm. eyes are like not glazed over like they're very focused but like what are you looking at i mean you know that like in my or we don't know this but in my head it's canon that while they were playing this um matt settle turned on like this mixtape of awesome music and he marches through the forest listening to, like, Eye of the Tiger or something. He's like, yeah, I'm so fucking cool walking around here in this fucking forest. Also, Percante's brushing his teeth again. Yeah, that's, that's a counter, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's, like, number 14 in the series. <laughs> number 500. <laughs> then he just, but then, you know, Spears just shows up, slav squatting, and he's like, you guys doing okay why are you guys here uh what are you doing on my tab Um, what are you doing in my swamp (laughs) what are you doing in my foxhole um but i do like i do like the foreshadowing here where spears give gives them not an order but like a recommendation that is clearly the good one where it's like you might want to reinforce your foxhole a bit and they were like Mm -hmm. no dyke told us not to bother by the way like like, this is the one time you give an order and it's to yeah. not get shelter. And this is when they listen? Yeah. <laughs> but then you have Spears kind of going, well, if Dyke said that, I'm not going to argue with another officer. But you clearly know that he's that he's in, in the right here. Yeah. Um, and he wanted to kill him. He offered him smokes. Yeah. That's <laughs> like when you... When you can't, when a vampire can't come in unless you invite it, Spears can't kill you unless unless you take the smokes. Spears can't kill you, like, legally. Spears legally cannot kill you. Like, are you a cop? Legally, you have to tell me. Like, you can't kill me, I didn't smoke. Um, But I also wonder, like, with the church scene later, where he goes on this weird rant about like ancient German or like ancient uh, Roman, Roman soldiers and he's like well maybe they just needed to know that he was the toughest son of a bitch in the army or whatever it is I I just imagine him like he's handing them these cigarettes knowing it'll like freak them out and then he turns around and it's just the biggest shit-eating grin on his face, where he's like, hey, <laughs> did it again, Ron. <laughs> you got the <laughs> He's such a nerd. Um, War criminal. Um, nerd. But yeah, they, uh, they make it back to their original positions, where it had been held by 1st Battalion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and whoever shit in Joe Toy's foxhole, your mom is a hoe. <laughs> you're gonna fucking die you're gonna fucking die you're gonna Im- fucking die <laughs> imagine how 
horrifying those moments must have been. Imagine being so scared you would literally stew in your own shit rather than leave the not even relative comfort of this foxhole for five seconds to go. Well, to I think the that's the whole of like uh both both sides of uh the war, like like the Japanese side and then the uh European side. Cause again, another Pacific parallel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Snafu shitting in that box right by everybody and then just mm-hmm. tossing it into the mud. Like, of course, like, they're not going to leave their quote-unquote secure areas. Mm-hmm. But that's also, like, the the insinuation is, of course, that Easy would never do such a thing. Yeah. Which means they are one of honorable. Yeah, exactly, which means one of two things. Either that Easy are just... They're just that brave soldiers that they'll always go to, like, the proper shitting facilities, whatever. I don't know how these things work. They couldn't... But, or or the second one, that whatever we saw in the Bastogne episode was nothing compared to what Dog Company experienced, which is yeah. terrifying. I, okay, I'm going to posit um, a solution, mm-hmm. if you will. Every couple of feet between every between every two foxholes have a communal hole like right by there. You don't have to go far. Just, you know, sit down, squat down, and shit. Man, why don't they hire you? The US I know. military. You can be like a shit engineer or something. Well now they have toilets, but like I'm just saying <laughs> that would have made things a lot easier. Far, not not to- not to crush your dreams here, but I don't think that was the point. <laughs> I don't think the point is that the army put the far away. I don't. <laughs> so this is something that I've been thinking about, and this seems like a really good time to to bring yeah, this up. Um, the energy expenditure of digging a foxhole in the frozen Mm -hmm. soil that is Mm -hmm. foy in January. Mm -hmm. Like, sometimes up up here uh, in Massachusetts, like, people don't even get buried in the winter because it's just that frozen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, These guys are walking back and forth around this town digging foxholes (laughs) Over and over and over again. Like, they had to dig foxholes in the Bois Jacques. And then they came back to their original positions. And then they went west of Foy and had to dig foxholes again. Like, in frozen soil in January. I think it probably... It probably looks easier in the show than it was in real life because I assume they had to like bring the dirt in, so it's not like mm-hmm. you know yeah. in real life it would have been literally laying there for like hundreds of years. Yeah, and yeah. also it's in the middle of a forest, there would be a lot of roots. Mm-hmm. To get um, and so- dog company can't even dig themselves a toilet. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Although it's first battalion, so it would be like. Able Bravo or oh sorry I can't remember what the C is. I'm so sorry, Charlie? Dog Company, that I've been shit talking you. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's Charlie now, but I think it was actually something different back then. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, like Dog is Second Battalion. Um, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's not. It wasn't Dog Company that was pooping in foxholes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, and then we have because I feel like Spears would not allow people to poop in foxholes. He would be like, "Get out!" What if uh, what if it was Spears doing it personally? Spears <laughs> <laughs> just walking from foxhole to foxhole, and everyone's like, "What's going on?" Like in the middle of a shelling, Spears drops into the into the hole and just drops. His no, head. it's like it's so like. like as it's in the middle of the day, it's nothing's going on. He has nothing else to do. I'ma hop in. I do like the insinuation that <laughs> like, <laughs> on command if it's first time. <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna sign that cannon. Spears yeah. can just he can let it fly whenever he needs to. He's like a really well-trained dog, like one of those dogs where it's like you, you <laughs> pee and they pee. Um, I hate I really this conversation so much. <laughs> yeah, I think we should <laughs> move on. Yeah, so you about now we're at 36 minutes and now there's a really horrible shelling and I just wrote down, what would be worse? Pleads for help or complete silence after a shelling? Silence. Yeah. Because, like, we've seen, we've seen from the episode before this that, I'm sorry to keep talking about the stone so much, but I kind of feel like these two episodes are tied together. Yeah, very much so. Very much. Um, so we've seen from the episode before that medics don't hide in foxholes while there is a shelling going on. Like, they're out there running because people are always screaming for help. And now we have a shelling and it's just complete silence. And pan to Joe Toy. Yes. And the six minutes of Joe Toy's Mm -hmm. leg being off. Uh, It's a six minute shot. Well, it pans to other things, obviously. um, But it is indeed like one tenth of this entire episode is the shelling where Lipton is talking about how cool it is to watch all of this destruction, but how he wouldn't have been laughing knowing that, knowing what happened to Joe Toy. So it is six minutes from like that point mm-hmm. until Buck like drops his helmet when okay. he sees the two. So this it, is trauma in real time. Like, yeah, if, if we're talking cinemat- cinematography, that is forever. It is such a long scene to make. But um, it feels, to me, I mean, it feels even longer than that. Because yeah. I actually thought it, it was going like, to be like 10 or 12 minutes, and it's mm. actually only six. Yeah, so there, there's this rule in, in theater, specifically like when you're doing like stage things, which is the one to three ratio, which is every, for every second that is one second long for the actor, it's going to be three seconds for the audience. So, like, you have to spend three seconds doing everything because that's the only way to get to, like, make something have an impact. So, so, so if a scene is six minutes long, let's say, it's going to feel like at least twice that because it's so emotionally taxing. Um, <clears throat> but I kind of wonder, let me toss out, let me toss out a question, because for all that Bill and 
Joe are doing in this moment. Like Joe gets his leg blown off, and then Bill starts pulling him towards a foxhole. None of neither of them call for a medic. It's just help. Yeah, but I'm Joe is of, just calling help. Yeah. I'm kind of wondering if Toy does it because he doesn't want to go back to the aid station. Like he just got back. He just mm-hmm. got back there. Obviously he doesn't have a choice. I mean he's lo- he's yeah. lost a leg, but like mentally ah. I wonder if that's where he's at. Like, I gotta get my helmet, I gotta get my rifle, I gotta get back up. Like, I need to go back mm-hmm. out there and fight. Like, that's the not, of a traumatized man. Not not registering, really, the, the lost limb, which is fully detached. Mm-hmm. Like, the nerves are just fried. Yeah. And actually, like, fighting Bill as he's trying mm-hmm. to drag him either mm-hmm. to a foxhole or somewhere off the line. I'm mm-hmm. assuming into a foxhole, but I... It's yeah. Kind of and is fighting him because he doesn't have his helmet and he, like, doesn't have his gun. He's like, I gotta go get my stuff. Like, can you put me down? And Bill is just like, what part of this do you not understand? Like, yeah. And Bill, again, just not acknowledging the crazy at this yeah. point. He's not like, you are insane. I'm going to, like, hold you away from here. He's like, yeah, it's going to be fine. It's it's okay. Don't worry about it. Like, you don't need your helmet. You don't need your things. I'm going to take care of you. It's going to be okay. Kind of like... And also, also, Bill doesn't call for a medic. And I wonder if there's a thing there or if they're just, like, looking out for Dr. Spina. I think maybe, like, momentarily they don't because they were both a little unconscious. Mm-hmm. Because I think they were unconscious till Buck gets them, and then they oh, wake yeah, up. Yeah, up to hit too. Um, yeah. But also, yeah, like if you think about it, with with the scene where Hashi yells for a medic, and a yeah. medic doesn't come, mm-hmm. it's shifty. Who yeah. comes and is like, get off the ground and get in a foxhole, like get yeah. in a foxhole. So I wonder if part of it is like don't call a medic after the first shelling because we know another one's coming. Like we know yeah. that they do this in this way so that we all get out of our foxholes to help each other. And then they shell us a second time, mm-hmm. which is basically what Lipton is constantly yelling because he actually understands what's going on. Um, that he's like, stay in your foxholes. Like everybody stay in your foxholes. Don't get out of your foxholes. So I wonder the, if that part of it as well is like, the only person that Lipton digs out is Heffron because he mm-hmm. had a tree fall on him or yeah. something like that. Like it, he was completely buried, like alive. Mm-hmm. So you think I overdid it on the car? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, no, actually, I think you're good, but I think you should have stayed there. Yeah. Stay. Why would he just stay under it? Yeah. I'm uh, guessing because if the tree exploded, there is no way a doctor would have got, or like a medic would have gotten to him. Well, and also it's probably pretty claustrophobic to like have an entire tree on you in your foxhole. Yeah, you probably. probably can't move very much. Like it's I mean, probably he he's from Philadelphia. He's probably never even seen a tree. In <laughs> and now suddenly um, he's, he's what the like, fuck is that? Right? Well, the but fuck this is that? actually this was the scene where I originally wrote like the arbitrary nature of war because mm-hmm. three people show up to get the tree off of babe mm-hmm. who is not injured mm-hmm. he's fine he's screaming for help but 
for all intents and purposes, like he's uninjured. He's just under a tree. 